open up our Bibles to the book of Titus. And I didn't see Kitty here. She was here. Kitty came up and told me that uh, she is graduating from Dallas Theological Seminary in two weeks. So I don't know what she'll be doing. Bong, do you know what she'll be doing after that? Going back to Hong Kong. So, uh, okay, well, great. Okay, so we are in Titus chapter 3. Now, last week we covered... Ooh, verses, we covered chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Uh, and we saw how Titus was encouraged to instruct the believers in the churches on the island of Crete to live soberly and godly lives so that they would be witnesses in front of the lost people. This is Titus. Okay, so we <laughs> chapter 2 ends with Titus chapter 2 and verse 15. And here's what he said to Titus. He said, speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. So he said, tell, speak all those things, these instructions. Exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Okay, that's 2.15. That's how we ended last week. Now we continue in verse 3, and he gives five more requirements or instructions to Christians. And these are requirements, I think, uh, on uh, how to have a healthy church life. Okay? So when he gives these instructions to individuals, he's instructing churches as well, not just individuals. As Americans, when we read these things, we think of all these instructions are just for me, but he's doing it in the context of a congregation. He's saying, you all should do this. You know? So... Look at verse 1, and it's very interesting to me. And I'm going to uh, say a few controversial things at this point, if you don't mind. So, here's the first requirement that he gives to the believers on the island of Crete. Paul says to Titus, remind them, continually remind them, repeatedly remind the church members, to be subject to rulers and authorities. Now, every commentary I've read <clears throat> identifies these rulers and authorities as the government leaders. Okay? And, you know, it could be that. I mean, every commentary can't be wrong, can they? But, you know, as I'm thinking through this, I have some problems with that particular interpretation of who the rulers and authorities are. Uh, he's writing to several churches on the island of Crete. Uh, they don't have that much uh, contact with the national government, Caesar and Rome. So the governments that they would be used to would be the local government. So maybe he's saying, you know, follow the local governments and be obedient. But here's the problem I have when I'm thinking about this. So I'm, what I want to do is I want to give you an alternate view, if you don't mind, for a second. Okay? And then I'm going to let you just decide what you think. Okay? I'll tell you why I'm not convinced he's talking about the government. Why in the world would Paul drop an instruction, just pluck an instruction and drop it right down here in this letter about the government 
when he's never mentioned the government before. He doesn't mention the government afterwards. It doesn't seem to be in the, the context of the discussion. What has he been telling them to do? He's been telling them to live godly lives and doing how to live in the church amongst believers and non-believers right around them. So my question is, why in the world would he just sort of pluck this idea out of thin air and put it to he in here when there's no other uh, mention of government anywhere? And you're going to see when he talks about the rest of things, it doesn't look like he's talking about something of that nature. And then the second thing was, if he was talking about the national government, Roman Empire. Uh, who was the emperor at this time? Anybody know? Nero was the emperor. This guy's half crazy. He's like a Hitler. Can you imagine Paul during World War II telling the people in Germany, obey Hitler? And <laughs> obey the Nazi party? Why would he say that? Hey, let me tell you. Hitler and Nero were about on the same level. Nero burned the entire city of Rome down, and guess who he blamed it on? The Christians. And then he punished them by arresting Christians and lighting them as torches. And he put these human torches along the highway so people could travel. So I'm thinking, is that what he's saying? I don't think he... I think Paul would probably, you know, recommend... Uh, probably he would have commended, uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer who resisted Hitler. And Karl Barth, who resisted Hitler, and, you know, Niemöller, who resisted Hitler. So I'm saying, well, is he talking about the government here? I have some problems with that. Another reason is, he does talk about authorities, though, in the book. What was one of Titus's first jobs that he was to do? Set things in order and appoint what? Elders over the church. Now, there are some authorities that you could obey. There are some rulers, the overseers, that you could obey. So I say, well, that's an alternative argument. And that last verse of chapter 2 says, Speak these things and exhort and rebuke with all authority. And uh, now he's saying, make sure that you tell the people to obey the rulers and the authorities. And in the interim, until the elders are appointed, who would be the authority here that they're to obey? Titus. So I'm just throwing out this is another option. Okay? So we have two options. Is he telling them to obey Nero and the government or local authorities who are godless people and don't even, they're atheists as far as we would say, or is he telling them to obey authorities in the local church? And so that's just something. I wanted to give you an option. Okay? And as I was reading through the text this week, I just kept going over this in my mind over and over again. And so I, so I said, well, I'm going to give them the option. So... If it's obey the government and authorities, guess what? You already believe that anyway, so that's nothing new. So, but this is something new. Obey those who have authority. Number two, requirement number two, right there in the middle of verse one. That's subject yourself, submit yourselves to the rulers, and then number two, to obey. To obey. Uh, to obey the government? Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about to obey the instructions in this letter? And I think it's obey the instructions in this letter, because that's the context. Follow the instructions in the letter. Number three in verse one. Be ready for every good work. Now, we said that's the theme of Titus, isn't it? Good works. 
So they are to be ready for every good work. Okay? That means when there's an opportunity, make sure that you are ready to do a good deed or a good work. I think what he's doing, he's contrasting real believers with false believers in the church. The real believers will submit to the authority and they'll submit to Titus. The real believers will obey the instructions in this letter. The real believers will be ready to do good works. But what about the false believers? Remember those guys? We saw them in the beginning of the book, didn't we? Remember they were the Judaizers? Remember what he said about them? Look over at 116, at the end of chapter 1 and verse 16. It says, they profess to know God. See, they don't possess, but they profess to know God. But in, look at this, works they deny, being abominable, look at this, disobedient, he just told them to be obedient, look at this, and disqualified for every what? Good work. But what is a real believer to do? Look in verse 1 of chapter 3. Remind them constantly to subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, and to be ready for every good work. So I see him contrasting the good or the real believers versus the false believers. See, so that's a way to look at this. Now let's look at requirement number four. And look at verse two. To speak evil of no one. To speak evil of no one. Okay. Now, what do the false believers do? They're speaking evil and they're blaspheming. Remember that? If you've been with us every week, you've seen that. We see over in chapter 2 and verse 8, he tells them this. Chapter 2 and verse 8, he says, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing, look at this, evil to say of you. So the opponents are the ones who are always throwing out statements, ah, look at that hypocrite, look at that hypocrite. They're saying evil things about the believers. And Paul tells Titus, hey, tell the believers to live godly lives so that the opponents' mouths will be shut and won't be able to say that. So he's telling now the real believers in verse 2 of chapter 3, speak evil of no one. And you know, when you have opponents in your church, and in this case he had Judaizers in the church, they had troublemakers in the church teaching wrong things. It's so easy to just take a pot shot at them. You know, tit for tat. And he's saying, don't do that. Okay, now requirement number five. Requirement number five in verse two. To be peaceful and gentle. You're to be kind and you're not to cause divisions. You're not to be a troublemaker. Peaceful and gentle. Kind, peaceful, don't cause divisions. Bring about unity in the church. What are the opponents doing? Just the opposite. See, so I see a big contrast here. And this is how Paul is, in a sense, wrapping up this letter. So, strive for unity. Notice each one of those commands is what we call an infinitive. You see that? To be subject. To obey. To be ready. To speak. To be peaceable and gentle. See that? So, 
That means that this is going to be your lifestyle. You're going to continue doing these things. That's the mark of a real believer. Now, how do you do that? Look at the end of verse 2. Showing all humility to all men. Humility is just the opposite of pride. The opponents are proud, and these people are to show humility. So these are five requirements that Timothy is encouraged to remind the church over and over and over and over again uh, to fulfill, to be strong church members. Okay? The fact that they need to be reminded means there's always a tendency to fall back into old patterns. Okay? Now the reasons for these instructions. Look at verse 3, 4. Now why should we be doing these things? What's the basis for this? Why should we be living these, according to these five requirements? Because, look at verse 3, we ourselves also were also once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. In other words, there was a time, notice the word once there, do you see that? At one time, guess what you were in verse 3? Foolish. Didn't have any sense. You know, you weren't thinking clearly. You didn't have any understanding. You couldn't discern truth from error. You were disobedient. You didn't follow the rules of God. And you were deceived. In fact, he says we were deceived, didn't he? We ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, and deceived. Was Paul ever deceived? Wasn't he a persecutor of the church? Didn't he go after real Christians thinking he was doing God's will? Hey, what are these opponents saying? Remember the opponents? What are they saying? You have to be what? Circumcised. Circumcised. They think they're telling the truth. They think this is essential. Right? But they're wrong. They're deceived. <coughs> and Paul says, look, Here's how we're to live because, verse 3, at one time and once, it's not how we live anymore. That's not how we're supposed to live anymore. Once we were disobedient, and we were deceived, and we were just like the lost people. In fact, we were the lost people. That's what he's saying right there. So that's what you were, and here's what you are to be right now and continue to be. Now look at the results. Look at the results. The results of foolishness, disobedience, and deception. Here's what we once did. Serving various lusts. Do you remember that? Serving various lusts and pleasures. Living in malice and envy. Hateful. And hating one another. Now notice there's three participles there. You see those participles? They're I-N-G words. At one time, he says, look, in verse 3. At one time we were foolish, means without knowledge, disobedient, that's obvious, and deceived. Okay? And here was the result. Participle number one, we were serving diverse lust. Now, two weeks ago, or last week, what did we see about this? You heard this. Look at chapter 2 and verse 12. 
In fact, we'll look at chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12. For the grace that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and what? Worldly lusts. Do you see that? What should we do? Live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Do you see that? We should be denying godly lust. And here's what he says. In the old days, when you were once disobedient, look what you were doing. Serving various lusts. That's the mark of a lost person. If your life is captured by your various appetites and lusts, you're not saved. See? Various lusts and pleasures. Second ING word. We were living in malice and envy. That means we hated people or we were jealous of people. And finally, hating one another. Despising each other. But that was once. Okay. Look out verse 4 of it. But! That's how you once were, but! Does that make sense? It's going to be a contrast here, isn't it? But what? But then, the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward all men appeared. And hey, that's just what we saw back in verse 2.11. So look back at 2.11 again. For the grace of God which brings salvation has what? Appeared. You see that? It's been revealed. And that's what he's telling us. He says, now therefore we should live a certain life. A certain kind of life. But, verse 3, verse 4 of chapter 3, but when the kindness and love of our God, God and our Savior, appeared, appeared, what did he do? Right, plucked right down in the middle of verse 4. Look, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, toward men, appeared, actually it's in verse 5, look what it, does, look what it says, he saved us. Do you see that right in the middle of verse 5? When the love and kindness of God appeared, look what he did. He saved us. See that? Based on Christ's coming and his grace, he saved us. Now, we get some very interesting wording here. You see that phrase in verse 4? Toward men, love. The love, actually in the Greek it's love toward men. Love toward men. It comes from one Greek word. Philanthropos. Everybody in here hear that word? Did you ever hear the word philanthropic? He's a philanthropist. What does that mean? A person who's a philanthropist. That means they do what? Yeah, they give. They give charity, that's right. They give to people and causes that have a need. Okay? And that's what God is. He's the great philanthropist. And that's how it reads in the Greek text. It says this, But when the kindness, and it's a noun. Kindness is a noun. God, has, God, is, a, God is kind. And He is our Savior. And His philanthropy appeared to all people. And as a result of that, He saved us. That's what John 3.16 means. For God so loved the world that He gave his only begotten son, and he saves us as a result. Okay, so let's see how he does it. Look at the means of salvation. Okay. So let's read it again. But when the kindness and the love of God, this philanthropic attitude, toward man appeared, 
He saved us. Okay. Now look at the means of salvation. First negatively. Look in verse 5. Not by the works of righteousness. Not by the works of righteousness. Which we have done. Okay. That means not by the works of the law. Not by the works of the law. What do the opponents want these church members to do? Get circumcised and start keeping the law of Moses. He says, no, not the way the opponents are teaching you. Not by works of righteousness. Big emphasis here, which we have done. Okay, That's the negative. Now let's look at the positive. But, according to His mercy, according to His loving compassion, mercy is a covenant word. It's a word that means God has established a covenant, and whether you have kept the covenant or not, whether you have kept the law or not, He is loving and gracious toward you, and it's through His mercy that we're saved. We don't deserve it. It's nothing that we earn. It's not through our own deeds. But it's through His mercy that He saves us. Watch this. Through the washing of regeneration. Some translations say through the cleansing of regeneration. The word washing or cleansing can also be translated through the bath of regeneration. And it's an obvious allusion to baptism, which symbolizes the cleansing that God does on the inside when we put our faith in Christ. And so when a person, New Testament believer, repented of his sins and put his faith in Christ, he submitted to baptism. And he was buried, and that was representative of a cleansing. There's no New Testament believer who is never baptized. Every New Testament believer who's mentioned in the New Testament is baptized. Not that baptism saves, but that they went through that process. And in doing so, they made a commitment to Christ. In fact, baptism was the invitation in the New Testament. First of all, they didn't have churches with altars. So the preacher couldn't say, now, all of you who want to trust Christ, come up here and stand at the front of the altar. What does Peter say? We'll see it in a moment. He says, be baptized. You can see. So that was the invitation. You want to repent? You want to believe? Here's what I want to ask you to do. Step forward, and I want you to be baptized. And by being baptized, you'll be declaring to the world that you've repented and that you've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he calls it this washing process of regeneration. A new birth. We're saved by him birthing us. He washes away our sins. He forgives us of our sins. And then he says at the end of verse 4, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So there's a washing away of our sins through regeneration. And there is a renewing of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit... Uh, comes into our lives. And so this is a, this is a spiritual renewal that takes place. So, new birth and renewal. That's basically what you have there in verse 5. New birth and renewal. Now, what does that sound like? Look at this. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. You know what it sounds like? Look at this, verse 6 which he poured out on us 
abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. What does that sound like? Holy Spirit, whom we poured out abundantly on us through Jesus Christ our Savior. What does that sound like? Huh? Well, there's a trinity involved there. That's true. Pentecost, the day of Pentecost. See? That's what he's describing. He's describing here, basically, Pentecost. And I want to show this to you just for a second. You go over to Acts 2. Just look at the wording, pouring out of the Spirit. A washing of regeneration. Uh, it's very interesting. First of all, we know that what happens on the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit is given... And Peter has to get up and explain what's happening. Uh, people began to speak in tongues. They began to prophesy. Peter's, some people said, hey, these people are drunk. What's going on? Peter says, wait a second. They're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. You might have a hangover, but you don't get drunk at 9. You're drunk at 9 at night. So he's going to explain what's happening. And look what he says in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Acts. He says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. It shall come to pass in the last days, I'll do what? Pour out my spirit upon my flesh. That's the same wording that you have over in Titus. The pouring out of the spirit. If you look up verse 18, he says, My men servants and all my maid servants, I will pour out my spirit in those days. In those days. Uh, Joel prophesied about it. Look at verse 33. Now remember what he said, though. He said, he would pour out his spirit, Paul says in Titus, through Jesus Christ. Look what happens in verse 33. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand, that's talking about Jesus, right? In verse 32, this Jesus God has raised up, which we're all witnesses. Therefore, being exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father, Jesus having received from the Father, the promise of the Holy Spirit, what did he do? Poured out this which you now see and hear. So here we see that pouring out of the Holy Spirit again. Look at verse 37. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the people, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said, here's what I want you to do. Repent, every one of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. There is that washing away. You see that? Symbolized by the baptism. And second of all, you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he tells them to repent, to be baptized, to have their sins washed away, remission of sins, and receive the Holy Spirit. And he says in verse 39, for this, for the promise is to you and to all your children, and even to people in the presence class, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call Okay, so there is the pattern. Now go back to Titus and read it and see if that doesn't sound very much like what Paul is saying here. So he says in verse 4 through 6, it reads like this. But when the kindness and love of our God, God and our Savior uh, appeared toward all men, he saved us. Okay? Not by works of righteousness or works of the law, which we've done, but according to... His mercy, he saved us, through the washing of the regeneration and the renewing of the Spirit, whom he poured out abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So he's just pointing right back to Pentecost and he says, you know something? 
And that wasn't a one-time thing. It's the same way he saves every one of us. Same way he saves every one of us. We repent. We present ourselves for baptism. We're declared forgiven of our sins. And we receive the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus Christ is the center. When you look at that, you see the word we there in verse 5. Not by works which we did. See? Which we did. Which we did. You see that in verse 5? But according to his mercy, he did. What he did. It's not what we did. It's what he did. You see that? Not what we did. It's what he did. It's not by our works. It's by what he did for us. And the work of Christ on the cross. So it's all of God. It's God doing this. Now look what he says, the purpose of all this. That, see that in verse 7? That's a purpose statement. Whenever you see the word that, it means so that, in order that, right? So read it that way. So that, in order that, having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now look at that. Having been justified. That's what happened in the past. The moment you put your faith in Christ, you were declared righteous. He justified you. He forgave you of your sin. Then look what happens. Having been justified, look what happens next. We become heirs. And right now, every one of us who is a believer is an heir. Right? That's our present state. We are... We have an inheritance, right? That's our present state. What he did in the past, what we are now, we are heirs. And then look at the future. According to the what? Hope. That's in the future. The hope of eternal life, which is that future eternal life that he's talking about when Christ returns and we're resurrected and the kingdom is established on earth. We are heirs. And guess what? Because we are heirs, we should live like heirs. We have a father, don't we? And we should be obeying him, serving him, living like a person who indeed is a Christian. We need to live up to our name, in other words. Look what he says in verse 8. This is a faithful saying. This is a good word. Faithful saying. You can count on it. A faithful saying means you can count on it. You can, you can uh, rely on it, right? Uh, you can take it to the bank. You'll never be let down. You can bet your salary on this. You know, bet your life on this. This is a faithful saying. And these things, those things that he said, these things, I want you, Paul is writing to Titus, I want you to affirm constantly. That means you need to over and over and earnestly tell these people to do this strongly, as strongly as you can, emphasize these things. Why? Why? So that, in order that, those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. The goal of your salvation now, as an heir, is to maintain good works. What does it mean to maintain something? Keep it up, that's right. Keep, the, keep it up. <laughs> keep it up in two ways. Like, but your house, keep it up, you know. But it means 
Yeah, to constantly be doing good works. That's what this book's all about. Good works. That's what we said week after week after week. How do you really tell whether a person is a real believer or not? Two things. You look at their behavior and you look at their works. So we are to maintain good works. In fact, look how that chapter opened in verse 1. Remind them to be subjects to rulers and to look at this. Be ready for every good work. You see that? Look, be ready. At the drop of a hat. Whatever the situation calls for. Be ready for every good work. And look how it ends in verse 8. Be careful to what? Maintain good works. Don't let it fizzle out. Don't do a good thing now and then sort of sit back on your laurels. See? Maintain good works. Now look at this. If you want to know what it means to be doing good works, he sort of explains it here. These things are good and profitable to men. So you know what a good work is? So when you do something good, it's profitable to someone else. That's a good work. That is what it means to live a Christian life. And we do this waiting for that second appearing of the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is one of the reasons why we ask every member of our class to donate $1 a week and a can of food every week. You don't have to bring it every week, but that's what it should be amount to. We have a kitchen behind there. There's a big pantry back there. It's filled with food. So we have food and we have dollars. And this is to help people, to profit people who need it. Now, Fred, off the top of your head, if I said how much did we help anybody this month, the last month? Approximately how much money did we give? Just around ballpark. $2,000. Now, you didn't know that. You said, well, where did my buck go to? Did it go into a dark hole somewhere? No. That's what we feel is really essential in this class, is that we maintain good works. And so we're trying to meet the needs of people. Not somebody who's got, you know, dish on top of the roof and spending $150 on 900 channels. You know what they need to do? Cancel the dish. And they'll have another 150 bucks every month. But it's to meet the needs of real people. And these are not just people out there. These are people that you know. They have names and they have hurts and they have needs. And so this is what we're trying to do. People with limited funds. When there's a legitimate need, we should be helping out. And it's not just dollars and cans. We should be doing this with our neighbors, family members, and all others. And when we do that, that's profitable to them. And it's a mark of being a real Christian. We have enough phony baloney Christians. Hey, millions of those. What did Jesus say? When that glorious appearing happens, he said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find, anybody know what the question is? Will he find faith? Will there be anybody that has, because 
Hey, let me tell you something. As we head toward the end of the age, things don't get better. Things get worse. At the end, there's, you know, where are the believers? There's not many. He says, in the end, a few will be saved. You ever hear that? There'll be a few who are saved. Now, a few may seem like a lot of people in comparison with, let's say, 6 billion people in the world. But a few will be saved. Now, I know the word few was used one time, first time it was used in, in Genesis, was when there was a flood and it says a few were saved. And there weren't that many. It was Mr. Noah and Mrs. Noah and their kids and a couple others and the animals. So, we need to always be examining our lives to see if we are in the faith. We should be living up to our baptismal vows. That when we were buried with Christ, we died. The old man died. That's how we once were. And now we're raised to walk in newness of life. Now we're like Christ. That's how we are. We are heirs with Christ. Hey, guess what? And the treasure is at our disposal. As an heir, guess what? We can reach into that account. And it's at our disposal. Not just for our own good, but for the good of others. We need to be doing what is most profitable for others. Next week we'll finish the book of Titus. Amen? Lord, we thank you that we're not only to be ready for good works, but we're to maintain good works. Help us to examine our own lives, to see whether we're in the faith. Thank you for those in our class, Lord, who are very faithful in helping the needs of people. Just out of obedience, out of kindness. Help us to have that same kind of love toward men. Philanthropic love where we meet the needs of others because the resources are at our disposal as a body of believers. As we all pitch in, we can help one or two because we're all doing a little. Much can be done. Christ, thanks. <laughs>